This is the climb to snake. Hello and welcome to the Declined Estate Internet Radio Stream, the show in which we get together to discuss the ups and downs of life outside the Matrix. Declined Estate is proud to bring you in the surprisingly few netcasts in which the hosts do not support acts of aggression against you. You can find us on the web at declinefm.com. You'll find a link to the live chat, and the live chat is your go-to way to interact with other listeners on the show or bring up points of discussion. Today we have a guest on who makes a living making arguments, and just yesterday got done with a red Ask Me Anything thread, but more on that in a second. I'm Ronald McPaul, your beacon of freedom in the heart of Silicon Valley, and I'm joined by my handsome co-casters. I'll let them go around the horn and introduce themselves. Hi guys, this is Eternal. Welcome to the show. This is a copy of Kwashi Orkor. And this is Roto from the brains of the Silicon Valley. I'm back, eh? Back again, guys. <laughs> the brains of it. Just to give them a proper intro, I, it's worth mentioning that DTS now has exclusive ownership of the voice of Stephen Kinsella, Stefan Kinsella, for the next hour, regardless of the medium of, of storage or distribution. Uh, Stefan voluntarily signed a contract under duress, agreeing not to make copies or rebroadcast of this episode without express written consent of Major League Baseball. Uh, I'm sorry, but implied oral consent is not going to be some today. Um, <laughs> hold on, hold on. Let, let me let me turn that button off. I have something on here. <laughs> Stefan Kinsella, our guest for tonight, has a bachelor and master's degree in electrical engineering, as well as a juris doctor through the Louisiana State University system. We might get on the, the more details later on. Um, Stefan is very open about who and what his influences are, citing Rothbard, Hoppe, Mises, the Austrian school, and the anarchist libertarian proprietarianism um, perspective. And he's certainly not shy about going against the grain. So um, a few plugs for him, stephenkinsella.com. Um, this month, I've, or this month, Steph, Stefan is launching a new podcast, Kinsella on Liberty. And in all seriousness, we hope that he chooses to rebroadcast Decline to State, whatever episode number this is there. And, um, you know, again, too, he did do a Reddit-style AMA yesterday, um, and now he's seeking refuge with a more friendly audience, or so he thinks. So welcome, Stefan. And... Uh, can get you to hit the ground running. Please tell us what it was like yesterday engaging the the status horde out there on on, on the Reddit community. Hey, thanks guys. Uh, glad to be here. Um, oh, it was fun. Uh, I, I guess it's over now because it's petering out. I uh, I just thought I would try it because I I can't understand Reddit, and I thought this would be a good way to understand it by just throwing myself out there and you know giving it an experiment. So it was good. I got I don't know a couple thousand comments and questions and. Uh, well, I got yep. the same question about 50 times. So, <laughs> <laughs> and It looked like you were doing your best to try to respond to as many questions as possible. And you were even catching flack for like the grammatical or typo errors. And I think one thing, funny enough, you mentioned like, check my published books. Like the, the spelling's yeah. great there, I yeah. promise you. Yeah I, yeah, I can actually type and spell well. I just was typing so fast and trying to respond that I was just, you know, not taking time to correct the errors. Um, so... Uh, no, it was fun. It was, it's a cool community. Um, I, I want to try something like that again or, or explore it more, but uh, it seems pretty cool. Well, I think, yeah. I think you did a great job. You were, you were handling a, you know, a lot of questions, and compared to other AMAs, you, I think you answered a lot more people than the average, uh, than the average Reddit thread. More and than you Obama. Did a good job. 
Yeah, yeah really. <laughs> <laughs> More than Obama. But he got a so, phone. So deserve, you deserve credit for that. I mean, you, you didn't get as many upvotes as a lot of other AMAs, but you, you're presenting something that's new to people, I think. You know, it's uh, it's a, really a different perspective than the ones they're used to, where, especially on Reddit, where government's the solution for everything. Yeah, apparently I'm figuring that out. That um, I, I kind of assumed this was kind of a quasi-libertarian audience or community, but uh, not quite, apparently. Well, don't worry. We supported you. I mean, we came in droves from the... Uh you know, the little nooks and crannies on Reddit that have people like us, and we supported you for, yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, no, there, there was a lot of good uh, intelligent commentators, especially near the end, they, they, they were weighing in. But yeah, no, it's a, it's a great uh, great community, great forum. Yeah, the um, beginning, I think you were getting a lot of attention from the, the general Ask Me Anything group, but you were linked through the anarcho-capitalism community, which is kind of where we spawned out of. And that one was kind of flowing you with, I think, positive uh, positive input for, for a long time. I think you were at the top of the page for like most of the whole last day, I think. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, uh, I tried to give short answers and say, listen, there's more detail in this blog post. And I was I had several windows open to kind of give different answers. And, you know, some people criticize you if you don't give a long answer. Some say if you give a long answer that, that you're being long-winded. If you give a, a blog post, they say, well, do you expect me to go read this? So it's like... <laughs> It's really hard to know what to do. If you footnote your work or refer people to other stuff, they criticize. If you don't, they criticize. But, um, hey, that's just the nature of the game. As we know. As we know. I definitely used some of your links. I took the advantage to, to read some of them there because you put them at very apropos times. So, um, anyways, enough, uh, <laughs> enough, to, <laughs> enough obsequious fawning, but uh, I think it was good. I think 600 upvotes is pretty good for a, for a first Reddit post. Well, good, good. I'm glad I, uh, I, uh, I don't want to say something crude, but uh, was introduced to this new thing in that way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, bro- I broke my Mary. Uh, it was very good, and congratulations for that. Uh, hardly, if ever, have I ever gotten a post on Reddit so, you know, so well upvoted as your post. I wanted to tell you something. I have a question for you, though. But first, before I start, I want to phone a little bit because I've been following you since before I met and I, you know, I was introduced to the ideas of Stefan Molyneux. That sounds kind of creepy, but go on. Yeah, well, I read his book. Like, I read Stefan's book, like, read Stefan's book. And it completely, I was like a copyright minimalist before that. And after that, I was, you know, this is completely, I mean, there's no way to keep having intellectual poverty on board. By the way, Stefan, at some point you asked in your blog what, Backronyms we could invent out of IP, and I suggested intellectual poverty, and you quoted that in your blog post. And I remember distinctly when you sat down with Stefan Molyneux and Wendy McElroy, and you had a conversation. And before that, Steph was an Ayn Rand intellectual proprietarian, right? And after that conversation with you, you changed his mind. You were the first person that I witnessed change the mind of Stefan Molyneux, and I was amazed at that. But I was kind of expecting that after having this conversation with both Wendy McElroy and you. And I'd like you to share with our audience, what do you think are the problems that exist in the current incarnation of intellectual poverty? Um, hmm. That, I mean, it's hard to know where to approach that from. Um, What's coming to mind first, or what different ways to approach it are there? Well, I mean, there's the theoretical libertarian point of view, the proprietarian point of view, the justice point of view, the utilitarian point of view, you know, just the practical legal point of view, uh, how you would talk to conservatives about it or liberal or, you know, whoever. But 
Um, I think if you just step back and look at it with open eyes as just a decent human being, I mean, let's not assume a lot of knowledge of, you know, Rothbard or whatever, just a regular person who's assumed, uh, accepted the, the prevailing wisdom about the purpose of the of law, right, is to kind of help us all get along with each other, just something vague and anodyne like that. Um, if you just look around and see, if you just look at it with sort of uh, unbiased eyes, what patent and copyright have done and what they're doing, you can't help but be horrified by what's going on. Um, in the patent system, you see all these oligopolized industries just filing multi-hundred million dollar lawsuits against each other, like Apple and Samsung and you know Motorola and Google and you know. Uh, uh, RIM and NTP um, and uh, uh, Monsanto suing farmers for having the wrong seeds on their own land and things like this. <clears throat> and, you know, just the, the bare estimates alone show that tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions, and my estimate is 200 billion at least a year, is totally wasted on just patent cost alone in the U.S. And that's the net. So, like, after you take out the alleged benefits of it. So you have huge waste, huge clogging of alleged free market capitalism, um, concentration of business interests. I mean, when you have two or three or four big companies that have all the patents in a certain area, like smartphones or whatever, they can sue each other. Have a they can finally settle with each other. Pay one can pay the other a fee, a license, and then they go on as before. But it erects like these walled barriers to competition. So smaller companies can't compete. They'd get sued out of existence because they don't have any patents that they could defend themselves with. And the consumers have to just pay outrageous prices because they're, you know, buying from two or three or four players. And in copyright, it's even worse, I think. I used to think patent was worse because it's worse, it's worse on a sort of dollar level that you can see. But copyright lasts so much longer. I mean, patent lasts about 17, 18 years. Um, in fact, there's a patent going around right now where someone got a patent on uh, podcasting, and they are they are suing all the big podcasters right now as we speak. Um, and uh oh, if, and, <laughs> they're not get big. I'm not yeah. joking. They are the, the patent is very broad. It says you know a me, you know if you assemble a bunch of sequential files, media files on a server. And you have a like a an RSS type file that people can access and that gets updated on occasion. It's, it's RSS. It was oh now, good. It, it has to get updated. We don't update ours very well. <laughs> well, uh, now this this was they they claim to have invented it in 1996 and they just got their patent like last year. Uh, so they kicked into high gear and started suing people. So I I suspect that these patents will expire in 2016 because 20 years from the date of original filing. So. And so that's most, three. They, that's three good years of promoting innovation. So they can strangle the pod, the entire podcast industry of the world from 2013 to 2016, and that seems bad. <laughs> but at least in 2016, we'll be free again. But copyrights last for about 150 years. I mean, it is insane, and uh, and the government is using it to literally put people in jail. Of course, you, I'm sure you guys know. You've probably talked about it already. This Aaron Schwartz case. This guy. Killed himself. One of our, the brightest stars of our, you know, technological generation. He killed himself because he was facing a devastation of his life because of federal imprisonment threats by the federal uh, Nazis in um, in New York because he downloaded some academic articles from a closet in MIT. I mean, it's obscene. 
So, uh, so that's one way to look at the, the problem of IP, which is intellectual property, which is primarily patented copyright, is all the harm it's doing to the economy into the culture and to it's distorting things it's repressing things it's putting people in jail it's serving as an excuse for the government to uh, ratchet up controls of the internet uh, and of, of free speech and it's um, causing people to die and this is something that yeah. we should not take lightly no i agree i mean kim.com was surrounded i think by like 69 you know gestapo agents uh, from four different governments us hong kong and new zealand and one other government um for having a file sharing site i mean really seriously he yeah, launched his new one recently hmm? yeah he did he launched mega i believe just the other day he's he's it's like he's, he's got balls he also has like a million subscribers already to it at least and like it took off instantly so yep. people like balls apparently yeah yeah and he's got it he's got this new encryption system and i wish him well but i you know i wouldn't i wouldn't want to trade shoes with him right now put it that way with a little bit of luck and some bitcoins he'll be successful Let's hope. Let's hope. But he's not running a charity, so he, you know he can't hope. I, I don't. I, I don't know if he's getting donations. I mean, so um. oh, he's actually he has a network of resellers now, and the resellers are you know the, there's a bunch of people who are attacking the resellers' source of money, which is the payment processors. So if the resellers can convert that and do it in, in bitcoins, then there's just no way to stop the man and his network of resellers, of course. And I'm really hoping that happens real soon. I hope so. That sounds a little bit like Bitcoin too. The same way Bitcoin yep. uh, is going to hopefully, if it's not shut down one way or the other, uh, may, may be spread too. Uh, so yeah, yeah. So let's hope. Let's hope. We have this like timer on the show for how long it takes to get on the topic of bitcoins, <laughs> and then never leave it ever. Is, is it like the the Hitler? The Hitler uh, what is it? The Hitler the meme Godwin's law. It, yeah, Godwin's law. Yeah, Bitcoin yeah, law. Yeah, that's pretty much how it works. Godwin's law. What's now it's a running joke is because we couldn't like stop talking about when we had Dr. David Friedman on, so we just kept grilling him to the point where he's like, I think I've talked enough about Bitcoins for today. <laughs> well, for, for, for me, it's intellectual property. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a libertarian, and my intellectual property is really not my biggest interest. It's, it's what I do for a – kind of used to do for a living. Um, but, you know, uh, I love rights theory, epistemology, Austrian economics, and uh, uh, contract theory, uh, just all these little anarchy, all this kind of stuff. But IP, of course, has become big. So, I mean, you saw on the Reddit thread, it was, it was supposed to be a general thing, but I think 95% of the questions were about intellectual property. Um, my friend Jeff Tucker, who talks a lot about it, he was on um, – Uh, the Peter Schiff show yesterday with Tom Woods as the guest host, and they held him over for like another hour just to field questions about intellectual property. So everyone wants to talk about that. So IP is like my Bitcoin. Um, I can't get rid of it. I don't mind it, but it kind of after a while gets old. But we could talk IP, Bitcoin. I don't care. I'm 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 game for anything. <laughs> okay, good to know. <laughs> right, on okay. a positive well, note, you have made some um, you had made some inroads in terms of trying to. Try to rebrand it as pattern privilege. I'm not sure if I'm referencing the most, you know, your most recent video that could be could be found on the web, but um, that seems pretty effective to rather call it property, you know, just to kind of give it a new name. It's a powerful thing, and then also, I, I think in in some of your presentations, you will do um, you'll show people some, some images and describe some laughable patents, and there's plenty of them. True. Yeah, I think that uh, that's one thing that's a little bit uh, uh, heartening, you know, as, as libertarians. I mean, I'm older than you guys, I think, so I've been at this for 20, 25 years, and, you know, you don't always make progress. You know, when you're 25 years old, you think that by the time you're 32, the world's going to be free and you're going to be a billionaire. 
Um, and then when you're 37 and it hasn't happened yet, some people get disheartened and they drop out, right? So you kind of then you adopt a different strategy of being part of the remnant or ba- dropping out or whatever. Um, I've never had that attitude. It never bothered me. I've just thought I'm part of the fight and I like it. I'm interested in it. Um, and we seem to be losing in some grounds, right? Taxes keep ratcheting upwards. Uh, I mean, wars, I don't know if war is really getting any worse in that respect in the last 20 years. I mean, it seems worse from a day-to-day basis. But at least among libertarians and some conservatives and, and some leftists, intellectual property has become increasingly under fire. And at least among principled libertarians, I think from what I've seen, well, number one, 15 years ago, no one even knew, thought about it or talked about it. And to the extent they did, they sort of assumed it had some kind of arcane justification as part of some specialized property right. Um, and there were a few early guys like uh, Konkin and McElroy and Tom Palmer that saw it, saw the problems with it. But by and large, libertarians didn't think about it. But now they think about it, and by and large, they're against it, especially the young people. Young people, college students, technologically sophisticated types, um, uh, leftists, anarchists, agorists, um, even conservatives are starting to question it. Um, or at least, the, to me, it seems like the Federalist Society types, they're on the, on the, on the, on the rear guard defending it. They're, they're sort of on the defensive now because they know that a lot of people are saying, wait a minute, how can this make sense? So I think we have made progress, and um, uh, that's been fun, and that's one reason to keep up because people keep asking and people keep joining on our side. And um, one reason I don't mind talking about it is because I found that you can't really adopt the proper view on this without getting straight in your mind a kind of a coherent view of property rights and economics and you know individual rights and libertarian principles. It all sort of helps it gel together better. Or, or you have to have a coherent view to have a uh, to figure out this IP issue. And once you do, it sort of I don't know if it unlocks the key, but it it sort of gives you the freedom. I mean, I don't want to analogize to religion, but it's almost like if you finally, if you know, like I was a Catholic, I was fourteen years old, and I I finally said, well, there can't be a hell <laughs> because you know there can't be infinite punishment for finite evil. That doesn't make any sense. Have you ever been to and- LA? Hey <laughs> man, fair point. Fair point. Uh, <laughs> I grew up there, but whatever. Anyway, so but, but my, point, my point is, once you sort of give yourself permission to admit that maybe all these traditional guys are wrong, that patent and copyright are part of the private property order, it frees you up to start thinking more openly and differently about property rights and. Um, then you can start criticizing monopoly in general instead of making an excuse for some of the monopolies you used to defend. You know what I mean? And then, then you get to the, the biggest monopoly of all, which is, of course, the monopoly on you know, violence in a geographic area we call the state. And then it gets fun. Yeah, that's the, that's, in a way, that's the most kind of perplexing and fun argument to have is with fellow alleged anarchists, just like on war. I mean, there's still a subset of even anarcho-capitalists or anarcho-libertarians that were in favor of the uh, you know the Iraq war and stuff, and you're going like, really? You're an anarchist and you're in favor of war? <laughs> um, it just it, it the mind boggles. I can understand a conservative or even a liberal, you know, Michael Kinsley or Mike Beck or you know someone like that being in favor of war, but a alleged anarchist. Um, and then when they come out in favor of IP, and you say, listen, you do realize what these systems are. They're purely legislated schemes that arose in privilege grants by the crown, right, to 
either censor free speech or to grant monopoly protectionist privileges to favored cronies of the court. And then it, it evolved into statutes passed by the government's legislature, which has resulted in what we have now, which is purely explicitly anti-competitive, anti, uh, anti-free market you know, grants of monopoly. Um, you do realize that if we don't have a government or a state, we can't have a legislature and they won't have statutes. And we can't have these kinds of laws. The only kind of laws we can have are those that are, uh, are are natural and that evolve normally in the interplay of people trying to uh, have peace in in the way they deal with each other uh, with regard to conflicts over scarce resources. You could never have a patent statute or a copyright statute just spontaneously evolve in a decentralized free market private legal system ever. It's totally impossible. And if you point this out, some of them will be honest and they'll say, well, we do need some legislation, you know, like the objectivists. But, but they're, they're statists. They're not, men- they're not anarchists. They're not even really minarchists, really. Um, so it's perplexing when I come across anarchists um, who, to their credit, most of the anarchist uh, scholars that I'm aware of, anarchist libertarian scholars, who have not come out explicitly on the IP issue, they keep their mouths shut. And I think I know why. Because they know they're on very shaky ground in kind of tenuously clinging to their old school Randian crap, right? And they see all these young guys coming up, firebrands, who say, what the hell are you talking about? This so, is Pat. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, you mentioned Ayn Rand. Um, I, I wanted to, <clears throat> to, to talk about this um, a little later, but now that has kind of come up. Uh, we wanted to, to talk about the, the objectivist um, critique that ideas are the result of their originators and so creation leads to ownership that that kind of it's almost like a marxist labor theory of value kind of stuff and yeah. I, I just like a really good rebuttal of, of that um for for everybody here in the audience well i think the rebuttal is that they simply can't carry their case so the rebuttal is that that the, they have the burden of proof and they don't carry it um now why do I I say this because I've I've looked at this too and it's perplexed me for years. I've been I mean I've been trying for twenty years to figure out the right way to look at this. Where the error came from? Why people have a, a why are they so willing to adopt this this view that seems so obviously wrong once you see it? It's Locke, and I, right? It's Locke. Tell me. It's I, Locke. I think I think it came from Locke. No, I don't. I mean, maybe it came earlier than Locke. I don't know who his influencers were, but Locke had this labor theory of property, some people call it. And I think that basically somehow led to the labor theory of value, which corrupted economics and Marxism for a long time. Um, and they're both they're both flawed. And nowadays, I think most free market t- type people, at least, dismiss the labor theory of value because they're sort of subjectivist in terms of value, uh, whether they're Misesians or Austrians, they at least recognize their, you know, the, the labor theory value is flawed. But Locke's, Locke had this argument where he said – I mean, look, there's, look, I don't want to blame Locke. In, in the, he was great for what he did, but I think he, he made a lot of mistakes. I think they're excusable mistakes. Uh, by the way, there's a recent paper out which I just read which argues that Locke was a complete, complete, abominably uh, horrible racist pro-slavery advocate. Um, so- that wouldn't surprise me. Like everybody back then was like yeah, Lincoln yeah, was, and all I, these people. I, right. And I get a little bit tired of all these um, conserv- modern conservative types who say, well, 
you you can't use modern standards to judge these people in the past. You got to, you know, it's like, so he was a relatively good pro slavery. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think it's bullshit. I mean, at some point, yeah, I, I guess you could understand using saltier language or being a little bit more misogynist, but you know, there were abolitionists back then who knew that slavery was wrong. And there were a people that were against racism who knew that it was wrong. In any case, Locke's argument, first of all, is mired in religion, you know, which he probably did just to cater to the ethos of the time where he said God owns the universe and the world, which makes no sense and is totally incoherent and is complete bullshit, in my opinion. But um, if you start with that premise, then he says, so God gave the world to humans. So basically, the entire Lockean case rests upon Genesis and the Bible, right? God giving earth to the humans. So we're already on a theological grounding. But if, even if you forget about that part. So what he said was you have unowned things out there and humans own themselves, I guess because God gives everyone ownership of themselves because they have a soul or something. I mean, that part is pretty unclear, but we're all assuming we own ourselves. Now, I think that's his first mistake. I don't think it makes any sense to say we own ourselves. Uh, we we talked about that on one of our very first shows. We had a huge discussion about uh, self-ownership. How do you actually come to that conclusion? And pretty much we just came up with the idea, well, it makes sense to assume it, but we can't really prove it. And to say otherwise doesn't make a lot of sense. So we'll just kind of go with it because it yeah, sounds good. Yeah, and, and, and I actually – I don't – I'm not skeptical of – I think you can come up with a coherent argument for why you should have self-ownership. I just think that the word is poorly chosen because self is sort of a complex concept that refers to more than your body. So I would prefer to call it body ownership. So I do believe that human bodies are scarce resources. And if we're going to discuss the possibility of conflict in their use, which is a possibility, right? There's violence and strife and conflict. Then if we want to say, how can we stop this violence and live peacefully? then we have to find a way to assign ownership or property rights is what we call it, or exclusive rights of control over these scarce things that could otherwise be fought over. So then the question is, in the term of body, in the sense, in, in, with respect to bodies, then who would be the rightful owner of a given body? And I think that the, the civilized and the normal and the natural answer is, well, every person is the owner of his body. The problem is when you start talking like this, then religious people – I'm sorry, um, uh, irreligious people – secularists, they freak out and they think that you're saying something religious because they think you're saying you're talking about the soul or something spooky. Uh, so I'm sorry to interrupt really quickly, sure. but uh, just make sure you don't get too loud because you are occasionally blowing our listeners ears me? off their me? heads. Yeah, just a little bit. It's good now. Just sometimes you get excited and uh, just just when you're getting passionate right at the end of the <laughs> oh, sorry, I can, I can hold my uh, my thing away a little bit. Sorry about that. Yeah, Please do be passionate. We love when you're being passionate. Well, I wanted to interject you and tell you I've had many conversations with people who say, what are you talking about? You owning yourself. That's not possible. You are yourself. To yeah. which I normally ask, okay, so you are a human and you're also alive. So yes. why can't you be yourself and at the same time own yourself? Why not? And nobody ever in my 33 years old, I mean, 33 years of life still has no no one has ever actually answered that question in a manner that is even remotely sensible. Yeah, no, I hear the most bizarre, um, uh, you know, sort of objections to the idea that you're a self owner. Um, like someone will say, well, if you believe in self ownership, then you have to believe in voluntary slavery, huh? which is which which is a separate argument and is not true. And 
but even if you believe that, are you saying that to avoid the possibility of people being stupid enough to sell themselves into indentured servitude or whatever, then you don't want to have people have the right to own themselves? So it's, what, it's what, crazy. So, right, so what's the alternative? Slavery or communism? I mean, there's really only a few alternatives. There's slavery, which is a master owns a, a slave. But even that assumes the master owns himself. So he's a self-owner. So even slavery presupposes the possibility of self-ownership, right? Or there's communism, which is everyone owns a one seven billionth piece of everyone else, which makes no sense whatsoever, um, right? Or I there's self-ownership. What's that? What's that? <laughs> He I call the uvula. uvula. <laughs> what does that mean? The, the little thing in the, in the back of your in your uh, in the back of your throat, the little thing that hangs from there, like a little bell. Yeah. And so he's claiming everyone's uvula right now. I don't think that's fair because I have my own uvula in mine. <laughs> okay. I, I'm just I'm just saying, just in case we all go communists all of a sudden, I just I just want to have claim to that part. Oh, you're you're making the claim. Look, first dibs, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's dibs. too thick. No, that's too Lockean. Um, <laughs> And the other, the, the other objection is by leftists who hate the word property because they say that it implies capitalism or corporatism or greed or, or just in the enclosing the commons and all this kind of stuff. But really, property just means when you have a resource that people only one person can use and there's a possibility of violent conflict, <clears throat> if you want to have the peaceful, productive use of that resource, then civilized people in a community would all agree that it's a good idea. For there to be someone assigned the exclusive right, the exclusive legal right to use that thing. And we call that property or ownership. I don't care what you call yeah. it. Uh, so the only, the, only dispute is, the only dispute is how you assign these rights. So I really get sick of leftists who say, well, I'm against property rights. It's like bullshit. Everyone is in favor of property rights. Everyone. Every single person in the world, even people that say they're against it. Because even if they say, like, there's this stretch of land that the government should prevent anyone from using and keep it pristine, well, in that case, the government is acting as the owner because they're preventing you from using it or homesteading it or whatever. So they're acting as the owner. So even this little, you know, goody-goody leftist, the do-gooder, even they have a theory of property. They think that the society or the collective or the caretaker state or whatever should be the one that has the exclusive legal right to control the disposition and use of this particular resource. So everyone believes in property rights. No one doesn't believe in property rights. Um, Correct. So the only question is, what is your property assignment rule? And when you put it that way, then you get to the nitty gritty, and then you start seeing where leftists and anti-libertarians start running into contradictions or incoherency or dishonesty or disingenuity. I agree. I agree. Whenever I have someone who will say, for example, stuff like, no, but why do you use the word property? Or that makes no sense. Or So I just stop right there and I tell them, all right, whenever you hear me say the word property, as in, you know, I am my own property or I own myself, I want you to listen to the following. I want you to mentally translate with the following. What I am saying is, if I say I own myself, what I am saying is, I control myself and I assert that I should be the one controlling myself. So it's a, it's both a factual statement that you actually do control yourself, and it's also an ethical statement saying, I am the one who gets to decide what will happen of myself, me, no one else. And so that tends to 
like open many people's minds and they just go like, oh, so that's what you mean by property. And yeah, of course, that's what property means, right? And if they don't, they just descend in this abyss of self-contradiction and insults and anger and stuff, then I know these people are just not ripe for any kind of intellectual debate and just move on, right? Thank you very much, but you're, you and I clearly cannot talk because you're not understanding what I'm saying. Sorry. Yeah, I agree with that. And uh, what you're intimating is, in my mind, similar to like Hoppe's argumentation ethics or even Molyneux's UPB, these kinds of arguments. I don't think you have to accept that kind of argument to see the wisdom of kind of what you're saying. It's sort of a natural position, and it's it's sort of at the root of what we're all arguing for, even if you're a consequentialist. Um, but to get back to Locke, and by the way, if you guys notice, we did get off the Bitcoin topic and IP, so that was pretty impressive. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Scoreboard. <laughs> I mean, right. you know, you, you got to give Locke credit for something. <laughs> so I, I want to ask yeah. now about about scarcity and rivalry, and I want to know if if my brother steals my girl, can I make him scarce? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I. I I'm pretty open to questions, but not to people with those kinds of accents. <laughs> we're, we're too poor to afford a soundboard, so we just have Quash do everything. I got out of, I, I left Louisiana early for a reason. I mean, I have to kind of, you know, I've, I've taken, I've taken addiction lessons, and I, I, I thought I covered it up. Um, but, but, but just to, let me just quickly try to get through this locking. So, because uh, I got bogged down. So the problem with Locke, in my view, is that his argument is that. We own ourselves, which I think should be reformulated as we every human being prima facie or initially owns their bodies, and therefore we own what we produce with it, like the fruits of our bodies or labor. Um, and I think that's his second mistake because I don't think it makes any sense to say we own labor because labor is just an action we perform with our bodies. So it's like double counting. It's like saying I own my car and I own driving to the supermarket with it. It's like, well, what is, you know, I, it doesn't even make any sense. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. So owning your body is sufficient to give you the ability to labor with it if you want to and to get the fruits of your labor if you do it in a smart way. If you piss in the ocean, you're going to lose your piss. You know, I mean, if you push on a wall, this is a physics example. If you push on a wall, you exert force. I mean, work is force times a distance. So if you don't move the wall, then you didn't get any work done. You just wasted your effort. Um, so if you labor on something that is not worth anything to anyone or you don't tell anyone about it, then you're not going to produce anything. So labor is not something you own. And so Locke said that you own your body and yourself and therefore you own what comes from that, which is your labor. And therefore, if you mix it with something that is unowned, like a resource, like a piece of land, then you're sort of you're binding you kind of got to think metaphorically and almost metaphysically you, you got to imagine these kind of little tendrils of substance oozing from you that you maintain some kind of ethereal ownership of and they're wrapping in japan once yeah 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 i know that's awkward <laughs> that's, that's that's different um but and they sort of mix in between the quarks i guess or whatever of the land and and because you can't separate it from the land anymore you, without destroying your labor then you have to own it just like if you swallow an apple or so you swallow someone's coin let's say they would have to tear your stomach open to get their coin back and that would be invading your body so by the same idea to take the land away from you would be ripping your labor away which is a manifestation of your your property a property of yourself an aspect of yourself 
so that's his basic argument. And the problem with it is so many – there's so many things. Number one, if you – again, if you own something and you throw it into something else, like if you spit in the ocean, it doesn't mean you homestead the ocean. You lose your spit. Um, likewise, if you mix your labor with land, maybe you lose your labor instead of owning the land. Um, and also his other mistake is that you don't own your labor. It's not a substance or a thing that can be owned. And finally, he was just wrong as other people have seen like Hume. Even Hume saw this not too long after. Locke's argument works even without this weird assumption of labor ownership because Locke's ownership essentially says that if there's an unowned resource and you are the first one to put it to productive use and you establish some kind of publicly visible border that is a claim to it that others can see and discern and recognize, then by doing that, by being the first, you establish a better claim to it than anyone else because everyone else comes after you. They're not trying to homestead something that's unowned. They're trying to take something from someone that someone else already has. But when you homestead something that's unowned, no one else can object to it precisely because it's unowned. In other words, if someone could object to it, they would have to establish a property claim in the first place, which which means it wasn't unowned. Very, so, very good point. Very good point. So, so the Lockean argument works in a simpler form without making the metaphysical and confused, overly metaphorical assumption of labor ownership. And if you do that and you reformulate Locke, then you don't get this, this objectivist stuff about property rights come from creation. And, and you don't get the IP argument that you, you own everything that you create. In fact, you don't own anything that you create. Creation is not is not only the on, is not only not the only source of rights. It's not even a source of rights. It's it's a mistaken idea. Um, in simplified terms, in my view, there are only three only three sources of property rights. Number one, in terms of human bodies, the 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 person who owns the body is the original is the person that controls the body initially, or it's a victim who has some kind of claim to restitution or maybe vengeance or whatever against that person if they upset the initial balance of rights by an act of aggression. But basically, we can determine body ownership by by the self-ownership principle combined with the criminal law idea of aggression. And then with regard to every other resource, the owner of every resource is easily determined by asking, number one, who was the first owner of it, the first user, or who made a contract to assign that property to someone else. So that's it. So you can only acquire property by being a person that has a body, inhabiting a body, uh, or by being the victim of crime and having some right to someone else's body because of a restitution claim or something like that. Or if you acquire property that was unowned or if you acquire it from a previous owner. That's the only source of ownership and none of them has a thing to do with creation. Creation just means having resources that you already own and then using your labor and your intellect and other resources you have to transform those resources into a more valuable resource that is more valuable to you or to someone that you might sell it to or give it to in that commerce. Makes, that makes sense, you know. And thinking of uh, the second law of thermodynamics that explicitly states nothing is created or destroyed. The only thing that happens is stuff is transformed and nothing yes. more, right? Yes. And as to the rules that you just outlined, Hoppe would say that these are the only property rules that are compatible with human life and not self-contradictory or contradictory in any other way and at the same time that those rules are needed because of the inevitable conflict between the you know rivalrous and scarce scarce stuff that is physical property is this is that correct 
I think that's completely correct. Um, and I think the, the, the idea that, uh, the idea that nature is, uh, is never created, but only transformed is, is as ancient as the Greeks. I mean, this is 2,500 years old, this idea. Um, it's, it's not a new idea. Even Rand, even Ayn Rand recognized this, um, um, which is why I think there's a deep contradiction in her entire political philosophy. But she recognized that we don't metaphysically create things. We only transform them. We rearrange them. I mean, Rothbard says this. Mises says this. Hoppe talks about it. And then lots of other thinkers. Um, um, I think that the, the problem here is people confuse value and wealth with scarce resources. Now, there's a reason that there's a connection. I mean, if I have more physical stuff, then I theoretically can – have more utility out of it or more value out of it. Um, but they're not the same thing. Value is a subjective phenomenon. It's, it's how the usefulness of a thing is regarded by the owner or by potential buyers of the thing. So you can't own value because value would mean owning the opinions about the thing, which is exactly why Rothbard rejected defamation law, which is uh, the reputation rights, libel law. Um, because that would imply that you have the right to what other people think about you, um, and which is why I believe Roth would have rejected copyright law in total instead of just 90% as he did if he had time to sort of trace it out. He was a little bit um, inconsistent in parts of his theory on that. Um, and so you can't own value in things, and wealth, you can't own wealth either really. Wealth is just uh, the u utility or usefulness of the, the physical things that you have property rights in. But the only way to commit aggression is to physically utilize by physically causal means, um, which is another way of saying to invade or violate the borders of someone else's property or, or owned scarce resources. That is to use their property without their consent. That is to interfere with their use of it without their consent. So it's really a consensual system based upon recognizing the the uh, unavoidable fact, fact of scarcity in the world and the fact that if we want to live peacefully together, we need to assign these things in a peaceful, productive way. And once they're assigned, the owner is the one who has the right to dispose of these things. Interesting. So we have a, we have a contrarian among our group who <coughs> thinks that it's possible to have intellectual property uh, per se. And I think I would like to channel him and uh, ask you a question that is, uh, I'm sorry again, I'm going to go back to the intellectual poverty debate. Uh, I would ask you, having established everything that you established right now, which, by the way, I completely agree with, uh, what makes ideas, intangibles, different from physical goods to the extent that property, the rules of property that we just discussed should not apply? Um, okay, so I would look at that two ways. And w uh, by the way, we're getting pretty, in my view, pretty, uh, we'll say deep, but this is, you know, pretty theoretical stuff here, which is what I love. So I, I'm trying to express myself clearly, and I, I hope this is understandable. But I'd say fundamentally, there are two problems with, with just saying, well, why can't ideas, um, what makes them different than other types of goods? Because underlying that question is the, is the is really the implicit idea that look, we all believe in property rights and scarce things, but why can't we just have property rights and other things? Um, and before I answer that, let let me just make an analogy. Um, Fantastic. I, I I I'm reminded of what what liberals say about other positive welfare rights. I mean, most of them, if you press them, they'll say, well, no, no, I believe in property rights. I believe you have the right to you know, most of your income and the right to your house. 
But I believe in other rights too. I believe there's also the right to a job and there's a right to, uh, you know, uh, health care and the right to not be discriminated and, against. And uh, Obama phones too. Don't forget about that one. It's exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the problem with this sort of generous doling out and creation of rights is very similar to the problem with inflating the money supply. When you inflate the money supply, you make every unit of money worth less. When you have artificial inflation of rights by you know decree of some kind of central legislating agency, you make other rights worth less. And, but and you do that in a particular way. I mean, I think most libertarians understand that you can't have a positive right to a job, for example, without someone else having a legally enforceable obligation to provide you with that job or that house or that food or that medical care, etc. That's um, correct. Every right so, has a counterpart, right? So every positive right has a, a positive obligation counterpart, and it always necessarily has to come at the expense of what we would call negative rights or property rights. So every positive right that you invent or try to justify is going to erode or come at the expense of other rights. And it's exactly the same thing with this idea that we could just grant property rights in intangible things in addition to tangible things or to non-scarce things in addition to scarce things. And the reason is because um, uh, every right is thought to be enforceable. Now, if you think about the word force, which is part of this very definition and this concept, force is itself a physical thing, right? And that's what we mean by enforceable. We mean that the government or the law or whatever system is in place, even in a private society, can somehow use physical force to get some kind of result. And typically that is force aimed against the the malfeasor, the guy that's doing the bad thing. Correct. But but what 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 is it trying to do? In every case, it's trying to either tell him on the pain of some kind of physically enforced penalty, you cannot move around this kind of way. You can't use your body in this way, or you can't use your property in this kind of way. Or more likely nowadays, it's just a simple claim for money. So if you make a phone that looks too similar to the iPhone, Apple wants you to pay them a billion dollars. So really, Apple is asking for government force to take a billion dollars of money from the bank account of Samsung and give it to them. So the this, real, is a, this is a real case for, for anybody who's not it is paying real, attention yes. to it. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to make this stuff up. Um, so, 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 so every dispute is really always about scarce resources. Talking about rights and ideas and this kind of stuff is, is only an excuse or a disguised, a disguised way of trying to justify what would otherwise be seen as naked theft. All right, so the question is whether the fundamental claims of the people who believe in intellectual poverty are legitimate, because if they're legitimate, then their payment is owed, but if, if they're not legitimate, then definitely this is just extortion, naked extortion disguised in, 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 in fake justice and in legal mumbo-jumbo, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so uh, uh, just to finish my previous thing, the, the counterpart to what I was saying is the reason they're distinct is, well, number one, to enforce rights in it is really impossible. And it, it can only come at the expense of other property rights that are already existing. But another way to look at it, which I find very useful, is the, is the Misesian praxeological framework, which is how Mises, the Austrian economist, looks at human action. And what he this is not too complicated, but basically he just says human action is when a given human actor 
sees the world ahead of him in the in an uncertain future, and he 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 predicts something is going to happen which he doesn't want to happen, or he predicts something that could happen that he would prefer to happen if he just takes some action. So what he does is he draws upon the knowledge he has about the way the world works. That is his his knowledge of causal laws, physical causal laws like physics, the laws of physics in a crude term. And then he uses the resources that are available to him along with his body to try to change the course of events so that he's happier. So every human action is a combination of employing knowledge and scarce resources. Now, the scarce resources are what we assign property rights in because they're scarce, because only that guy can use this stuff at one time. If someone else tries to use it, they're going to be fighting over it instead of being able to use it productively. But the knowledge that he consults, the recipes, for example, the knowledge of what's possible in the world, is knowledge that's potentially tradable, expandable, learnable, and can be carried on from one person to the other and can, over time, enrich the body of knowledge that every human being as part of human society has access to. So you don't want to artificially restrict the ability of this flow of knowledge and learning, but you do want to restrict who can use scarce resources because of their nature. They can only be used by one person uh, at a time. Oh, great. Yeah, we're glad you got time to go back and finish your thought. That's important. Sometimes we'll interrupt you. <laughs> um, if uh, if it's okay, if it if it's still fresh, um, we want to go back in time a little bit just to get a listener question in. Um, we said we'd try to do that um, sure, earlier in the show. Okay. So, listener uh, facade, he says, uh, you were talking before about the restitution principle. And so, he says, does that restitution principle support a give the land back stance? Do you believe that individual American citizens have a enough of a homesteading claim on their property to outweigh Native American claims? Um, it's a good question because... Um, Sometimes it's asked disingenuously. I don't think this guy is. I think sometimes it's, it's asked to sort of challenge the hypocrisy or sincerity of the sort of a pro-American rah-rah who claims to be for property rights. But then when you ask them about the Indians, they sort of say, well, 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 right, whatever. Um, and in my remarks, I didn't go into re- retribution because that's a more of a controversial thing among libertarians. But I think most of us uh, – I think rest- restitution is more of a – uh, uncontroversial thing, which I I don't disagree with. Basically, it's a consequence of property rights. It means if you own something, you own it until you voluntarily transfer it away. So an implication of that would be that if someone could demonstrate better title to you know the land that a building in New York is on or the building my own house is on, that they should be able to get that. And I do believe that. Um, certainly, I do think that whoever has the better claim to property should be able to to get it back. Um, now, as a practical matter, legal systems adopt what's called a statute of limitations, which I don't agree with as a libertarian because I don't believe in statutes. But the principle is understandable. The principle is based upon the idea that, number one, if you have a claim to assert against someone, you need to assert it before too long because it's unfair to wait too long to assert a claim. Because people start relying upon that you're not going to assert the claim or evidence becomes stale um, and it's going to be much more of a a, a random sort of verdict after too long. Uh, And number two, because the evidence gets stale and we sort of recognize as a practical matter that after too long of a time, it's almost impossible to prove anything. Um, And I think that's probably the case now. I think it's going to be very difficult in most cases for any living, say, American, Native American uh, person to trace 
back to a concrete person who has a concrete claim to a concrete piece of property against an actual living human today. But if they could, I would say, yes, they are entitled to it. Um, but I also believe that in a free society, the possibility of that happening would give rise to the market for property title insurance, which we actually have now, but for slightly different reasons. So basically, if you buy a house, you're going to pay a title company to search the records according to the libertarian property rules in, in force in that society. And if they can prove with reasonable certainty that the guy selling you the property has a good claim to it, they will guarantee that with an insurance policy. So if I buy this home for half a million dollars, uh, I know that on the unlikely case that someone comes to claim it later, then the insurance company that's in charge of that will re re recompensate me, you know, compensate me, and it won't be a big problem. Um, so I don't think it's a big, big problem. But in theory, um, yeah, I, I do agree with with. Uh, with, with that type of restitution. So um, we're almost at the end of the hour here, and we like to uh, ask one question of all our guests before uh, the end of the, the regular show. Um, actually, before that, I just wanted to ask, I, I know we've kind of flown through this hour, and sometimes we, we do stick around after the quote-unquote regular show for like after show time, which is more of a looser discussion. You're welcome to stay if you want to. Um, I You don't have to if, if you want to go and do your own thing. It's up to you. Uh, so. I've got a little time. I'm, I'm free for a few more minutes, sure. Okay, so so after we play our outro music and do our outro, we'll, we'll stick around for as long as you, you want afterwards. Um, but yeah, but for the end of the regular show segment, uh, Quash is going to ask our, our usual question. All right. Uh, it, it, normally our guests come on and, and we have a piece at the very end called the Bizarro Mode where we ask them to come up with the best idea that they can find against their own argument. What's the best thing? that you've heard that would defeat and confound you and totally destroy your arguments against IP? How would you phrase that? Hmm. That's not a good question because I could give you an answer like that for anarchy or libertarianism. But the, the go, problem go ahead. Yeah. Pick, pick one the, thing that, that you the, think you could do. Yeah, the problem with IP is that there, I have never, honestly, have never heard a good argument for IP. Um, I guess if you could argue that if we got Got rid of patents that we would go back into the Stone Age or something. But anyway, um, anarchy. I, I guess the difficulty, the most difficult argument for anarchy would be the idea that let's say we somehow anarchized the United States territory, but there was still a, a threat of a nuclear, a nuclear armed China or Russia, right? Another state out there that was hell bent on destroying us, which I don't really believe, but you know, it's not completely implausible. Um, so the idea that you would totally disarm unilaterally and disband the state in a given territory in a world where there are other states, that one is probably the hardest one to um, – or, or private ownership of nuclear weapons, those kind of you know uh, annihilation-type arguments uh, I think are the most difficult ones. But honestly, for IP, I, I mean if you guys can come up with a good one, I have never heard a good <laughs> argument for IP. Never. Maybe in the after show. We'll send you a link. I'll send, personally send you a link to our interview with uh, Jeffrey Tucker. He gave us a fantastic Bizarro Mode argument. Had us on the floor for like two minutes. <laughs> okay. Well, Jeff is good at that. <laughs> so it's about that time, y'all. It's about 23 hundred. I hear like a clock going off. I think yeah, that's that mine. Time. Sorry, I'm about, to, I'm about to let my W go. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's about 2300 hours Eastern Standard Time and 2000 Pacific. 
So keep Obama in president, you know. He gave us a phone. He's got an intellectual property. You too can choose to decline to state as we continue to feel all the feels on either declinefm.com or decline to state on iTunes. I would like to remind you that decline to state is still brought to you free of charge as well as paid advertisement free. And a big thanks to all of our hosts, tech experts, researchers, contributors, our listeners, and of course, Stephen Kinsella for joining us. Decline to state is a group effort motivated by our love of liberty as well as capitalist bow ties and free market monocles. So remember, when asked, always decline to state. This is Ronald Paul saying, have a good night, everybody. This is Eternal. Mm-hmm. Take care. Mm-hmm. This is the original Quashior Core. Good night. And this is Rotto, the brains of Silicon Valley. Say goodbye. Have a great night, guys. And don't forget to stick around for the after show after our outro. And check out StefanKinsella.com. <laughs> <laughs>